Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the podcast. We are plowing our way through the New Testament. When did we, did we start this in January? Yeah. Going through the New Testament? Yeah, <laughs> so, it's now January 12th. Yeah, so we are uh, starting Romans. Uh, yeah, you could tell we're, we're taking our time through and we're still, man, th- this is going to be a fun series because we're working behind the scenes on uh, getting some guests for this and hopefully they work out because it's going to be a lot of fun. But uh, if they don't work out, it's their loss. And it's still a lot of fun. Exactly. <laughs> so we've read through four gospels, which are its own genre own style of writing we went through the book of acts which it's its own genre it kind of reads like a gospel but it's different uh the the theological history that we're seeing in there now we're into you know until we get to the book of revelation we're in letters uh fancy word for that is epistle if you've ever heard that oh it's just a letter and so we're, we're reading something different now so letters are a little different. We're probably more familiar with how to read letters. So we could we could jump into that. We'll probably talk later down the line on how, you know, how to read a letter and what makes a letter a letter. Uh, we'll say that for the next book. But we're going to start with Romans. This is like the the letter of letter. It, 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 has there been a more uh, influential yeah. book in the New Testament, certainly? And so we're going to jump into that. And, and so before we even talk about Romans and we get into chapter one, what are approaches to reading Romans? How has maybe uh, scholarship changed over the last 40, 40 odd years, 45 years right. in terms of just how we approach reading a book like Romans that has maybe shifted from where Romans has been at from the previous 500 years? We're going to have a discussion right now before we even start the book of Romans for those of you guys who are listening and kind of laying a foundation in terms of where the scholarly community is on Paul and Paul's theology and his perspective, and then how that affects us a little bit. And so I want you to hang in there with us a little bit. So kind of, if you have a paper and pen, kind of maybe take some notes and or just kind of pay attention for a little second. And of course, if you get lost, don't worry about it. We're going to kind of try to really make this as practical as we can, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the reality is, this is something that, that has a lot of weeds. It does. And mm-hmm. it has, it has a lot of significance too. I think mm-hmm. it really has. An, and so what we're, we're going to try to boil this down to keep it simple, simple as much as we can, but oh, here's what I want you to know for you who are listening. This is not going to be a script. So normally Vinny and I kind of have an idea, a mm-hmm. template of what we're going to discuss. And we kind of go point by point by point, kind of through, through a set of notes, but Vinny and I are not even on the same page necessarily with this. And so I'm going to present to you what the what we call the new perspective on Paul and what mm-hmm. what's happening with that, and then Vinny's going to kind of interject, and mm-hmm. we're going to kind of go back and forth a little bit on this. But I want to focus even you know between Vinny and me, and that is okay. Why is this important? Kind of get your Winnie the Pooh thinking caps out and go you know think think think. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> but uh, does that make me Eeyore or who is it? I don't, anyway, I don't know. You don't want to be Rabbit. That, no, you don't I, want to be Eeyore. Yeah, <laughs> you know who's fun is is, um, is Rue. That there you go. Yeah, or, or Tigger. Uh, um, is there a happier, jo- more jovial awesome. person than Tigger? Anyway, <laughs> I'm the only one. So uh, I call that the Elijah determined complex. determined truth of musical. I call that the Elijah complex. I'm the only one. I got seven thousand of them. But I'm the nice, only one. nice, good pull. Good it's pull. the Elijah complex. But uh, what's happened is this: in the 1970s, based on some work that was happening before that, a biblical scholar kind of came up with the reality of saying, "Hey, wait a second. 
we now have a better understanding of what first century Judaism was like. And even when I say that, let me clarify. Mm -hmm. Most of what we say from first century Judaism, if you're aware of the historical context, Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70. So you might have known if you studied the Bible about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and maybe uh, if you study biblical history a little bit, maybe about the Essenes, and maybe a little bit about Zealots and Herodians, and you may or may not know who these different groups are. Most of the Pharisees and Sadducees are the two major groups. The only group that survived the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. So what we know about the Sadducees comes from what we know from what the Pharisees said about them which means they're not always painting a good light or what the biblical text says about them. And that's, mm-hmm. they're not always painting a, biblical, in a very good light either. But nonetheless, the writings that we actually have to know about what first century Judaism was like actually all come from the second century. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Hey, so-and-so says, and so-and-so says, and so-and-so says, and they're quoting people from the first century or even beyond before that. But how do we know that they quote them accurately? That's one thing. Second thing is, is that when we say, well, the Jews in the first century believe this, well, one rabbi that they quote says something that another rabbi contradicts. Mm-hmm. So we haven't done a good enough study, even to this day, of first century Judaism from collating all the second century sources. But the point is, the second century sources about what first century rabbis and first century AD and first century BC rabbis were saying. But realize that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls and other discoveries that have now happened in the last 100 years. And it's the studying of all those documents that have now come to us. We're like, oh, guess what? First century Judaism was saying this. And what Mm -hmm. happened was the scholar will kind of go, you know, uh, what we think of, and I'll say we, you know, you and I and most of our churches today, what we think of what Paul was teaching is based on a conception of what Martin Luther and the reformers in the 1500s and 1600s were saying. And that, that idea is that there's just a really strict legalism that was happening amongst That's the Pharisees. And, and we use that word a lot in our churches. There, it's a, there's a legalism and, right. and this is the thing that he's fighting against. It's not working to become saved and, and that right. kind of idea. What Luther and the reformers were saying is, is that the first century Judaism was legalistic, mm-hmm. meaning they thought that one got saved by doing good works. Mm-hmm. You work and, your way in. And Jesus mm-hmm. comes into the picture and says, guys, you're legalistic and you're arrogant. And you go walking down the street and you blow a horn when you're, when you're giving um, prayers and you let everyone know you're walking in the temple to give your uh, tithes and offerings because you're arrogant and boastful. And so from that, what we call the reformed understanding of Paul is that Paul was arguing against first century Judaism and their legalism. Well, we now come across these discoveries and go, well, I'm not sure that they were completely legalistic. Mm-hmm. So let me kind of run down what the basic structure is saying, and then we can kind of go back and forth on, mm-hmm. on some different ideas with that. So the basic idea that came about was the Jewish world believed that they were chosen by God, that God chose Israel, and that God then gave them the law. And that law was kind of God's promise that they were the ones who were elect, and there was a, look, a requirement to obey. Now, let me stop, by the way. There's always going to be a diversity of, of views within any group. You can't simply mm-hmm. say this is what first century Judaism was like, because the reality is there's going to be a diversity. I mean, the Pharisees and Sadducees were radically diverse groups. But generally speaking, this is the idea that Judaism taught that they were chosen by God, given a law. The law exemplified their chosenness because that made them special because they had the law. They had a requirement to obey the law, and they thought that God re- rewarded obedience and that God punished disobedience. But the law provided a means for atonement. Mm -hmm. 
And then atonement kind of reestablished them in the law, whether it's sacrifices or different prayers and different things that they have to do. So it wasn't that they got saved by being obedient to the law. They got saved because they were chosen by God and given so the law. And the, the law idea of election, a, right? Election, mm -hmm. exactly. It's, that's what election is all referring to there. And so the law simply maintained their status as God's chosen people. The law wasn't the means by which they entered into it. Like, oh, if they're faithful and obedient to the law. Now, remember this, by the way, when someone says, okay, Luther or Luther comes along and says, this is what first century Judaism was like. And then he reads Paul in light of that, or even Jesus in light of that. We all come to go, oh, that's cool. And we, we kind of adopt a framework for understanding Jesus in the Bible in this light or Paul in the Bible in this light. And so understanding Paul in that, what we might call that reformed sense. And I'm using that, remember, I'm an ordained as a reformed pastor. In that sense, we're saying we can make sense of Jesus and Paul. But all of a sudden, the scholarly world, especially in the 70s, was going, but that's actually not correct, at least not fully. And there's debates on how, on how fully mm -hmm. correct it was. The idea was that the law was not the means for being saved. The law was an indication of they're actually that they are saved. And now law is a means by which they remain in the covenant. But if they break the law, they just go get sacrifices and they, and they remain in the covenant. Now, here's the key. And that's this. When you get to Jesus or when you get to Paul, and that's why it becomes a big issue. Because now the gospel and the book of Acts, they, they all of a sudden go out to the Gentile world. And now you have this clash of culture. We talked about this a little bit in our, mm -hmm. in our Acts studies. And you have to respect that clash of culture and what that means and what that meant for them. And people in that first century world were like, I don't know what to do with this because I've always been raised, you know, if you're a Jewish person, I've always been raised to think I can't eat with a Gentile. I can't go into their homes. They are unclean. And again, if you have that mindset, everything that you experience over the course of your 40 years of life is going to reinforce that. See, they do these things. See, they do those things, right? It's like saying all people of this ethnicity are bad drivers. Mm -hmm. And then you see mm -hmm. when it's a bad driver, like, see, they're all, mm -hmm. but you skip the five that weren't doing the things that you thought they were doing and you ignored that. So everything that you see and think gets filtered into this perspective. So if you're a first century Jew and you accept Jesus and you're like, okay, I get this Jesus thing. I'm struggling with it a little bit, but I understand he rose from the dead. Let's reread our scriptures and understand it in light of the death and resurrection of Christ and what this means for us. Okay, the Holy Spirit has come. All this is great stuff. But now there's these Gentiles and they want to eat communion with us. And, you know, Peter's telling us that, uh, Peter's saying that they don't have to get circumcised. And this guy over here is saying that they do have to get circumcised. And I don't know which one to believe. You know, grandma and, you know, and my family is kind of pushing me towards this, the side that says that they do have to get circumcised. And so you have this conflict there. The key thing then is that Paul kind of enters into this debate. Do the Gentiles have to get circumcised in order to be saved? And saying, well, what you're doing is you're making class distinctions among the within the church. You're making one group better than the other group. And therefore, this is not going to work. You're making the Gentiles second-class citizens. So this becomes the big issue. So now what happened then after this discovery of how do we read Paul? Was he debating against legalism or was he debating against salvation by ethnicity and that we're the chosen ones because we're Jewish people? And if the Gentiles want to get saved, they have to adopt our laws because the law is what God gave us as our chosenness. Well, then another scholar comes along and says, well, let's also be clear here. When Paul says works of the law, which mm -hmm. 
again, we read that as saying, oh, works of the law means the works that you do to get yourself saved. Mm -hmm. That what Paul meant, that what Paul was talking about, because what first century Judaism was talking about, is that works of the law referred to the things that identified you as Jewish. Okay, now let me explain that. Works of the law means that you are circumcised, because that identifies you as Jewish. Works of the law means that you follow the food laws, because again, that distinguishes Jews and Gentiles. You Gentiles eat these foods, we don't eat them. Um, and works of the law means that you have the Sabbath rest, because other cultures, they work seven days a week because they have to work seven days a week to eat and, and to survive. Uh, and they don't honor the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath was a symbol for all the Jewish sacrifice, all the Jewish um, festivals and festivities, except, so Passover and Pentecost and the Sabbath and all that stuff. You follow the food laws and you're circumcised. Those are what works of the law mean in the sense that they identify who the Jews are and who the Jews are not. And Paul's like, if you do those things, you're saying that the Gentiles are lesser. But what Paul's going to say is, hey, you Gentiles, let me ask you a question. Did you receive the Spirit before or after you were circumcised? Did you receive the Spirit while you were eating kosher foods or non-kosher foods? Did you receive the Spirit before you learned about the Sabbath? And the answer is, of course, yeah, they got the Spirit, which most likely is you know, charismatic phenomena. That's how it's just evident that you got it. So Paul's arguing, hey, look, they got the Spirit, guys. And therefore, we don't need to make these class distinctions and make them inferior to somebody else. And that's obviously the famous Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor female nor female. So I hope we're, we're framing the conversation. The reformers thought that Paul was arguing against illegalism. And remember, Luther was debating legalism in the Catholic Church. So he thought that the first century Jews were just like the Catholics in Rome that he was debating against. Or was Paul talking about Jews who believed that they were special because they were chosen and the law was a symbol of that chosenness and therefore Gentiles who want to come in now have to adopt those symbols of their chosenness, namely the Sabbath keeping food laws and circumcision. One last thing, and that's this. N.T. Wright, which is a name that we've uttered before and some of you guys should know of uh, pretty well. So N.T. Wright enters the story now in maybe the 90s, maybe late 80s, but early 90s. And he starts doing this massive work on Paul and says that what Paul and the New Testament was doing was that they were talking about the story of Israel as a story of God's elect people finding its fulfillment in Jesus. And therefore, those who follow Jesus are fulfilling the story of Israel, which is the story of being sent out of the, out of the land, and then that's exile, and then being restored back to the land. And all who repent, which means Gentiles can be included, because if they repent, they're in, are being are the exiles who are coming home. So this is the context that kind of that N.T. Wright adds to this. So N.T. Wright would say, yeah, it's definitely this idea that Jews are the chosen people by election, not by um, by the law. The law simply identified you as chosen and you maintained your identity as chosen by doing the law. But if you forget or don't forget, but you sin, then you do sacrifices and you're restored back into your chosenness instead of being legalistically following the law. Does that, that make sense a little bit? Now, there's, there's more, but let me kind of stop there and see if, if any of you want to comment or add anything there. Yeah, I mean, there's just a ton there. So just maybe yeah. to summarize this, because yeah. this is, I mean, this is a tough topic, I think, for mm-hmm. folks who have even been studying it for a while. It's like, yes. there, there's just a lot there, because what you're saying is you have a multi-century long understanding in, in the Protestant tradition of how to read something like Romans, right. which is primarily viewed as a 
a letter, a document, even almost like a systematic theology, right? We read Romans as though this is the declarative way to figure out how to get right with God. So yes. the idea of, of how we read something like Romans is this is talking about how you become one of God's people. Late seventies come along. The scholar you're talking about, his name's E.P. Sanders, this guy right. who does this, this great work. And he starts, you know, pulling all these sources together. He starts challenging some of the, the ways in which the, the traditional Protestant understanding has been there saying it's, Hey, it's not just about legalism. And so now, that sparked it's funny because he he critiqued the diversity of first century judaism but it's funny because even with this movement that you're talking about uh rob the new perspectives on paul there's actually a lot of diversity in there so yes, the, the, you're you have someone like an nt right who's obviously a huge name there, there's a few other names that are big names we, we probably don't want to say all these just because this becomes information overload and yeah. it's just this just becomes a ton of names so we're not tr we're, we're trying to simplify it as much and, possible. and it strokes their egos so yeah we exactly won't, we, we, don't, we don't get paid for it yeah yeah <laughs> but uh, even something like you had mentioned works of the law like that yeah. technical term you, you read it like a, a romans three we'll get to it i'm sure you know for the by by the works of the law no human is justified in this site so that becomes like one of the conversations what does paul mean by works of the law and even right. within the new perspectives camp you have different understandings of this is what we think it means and so you could you could have all scholars who are on the same side of the equation generally but even some of these details become something that they work through on well what does paul mean by this uh so it, it you know, by the end of the day there, there's something where even within i would say new perspectives camps that i've uh observed as there's been a shift from the the traditional Protestant idea of something like Romans is teaches you how to, you know, how you become right with God. And there's more of that shift of, no, it's a Jew Gentile conversation. So it's not how you become right with God. It's who is right with God. It's less of a, of, I don't know, maybe the way I'd say it is there's less of a vertical emphasis that the Protestant tradition might have of this is me and God, rather than it becomes a horizontal thing. You know, who, how, who becomes right with God and what does life look like amongst each other? Right. Would you say that's another way of maybe a, a yeah. difference between a Protestant reading and, and a traditional Protestant reading and a new perspectives reading? It's, it's shifting and looking at those things. Okay. Yes. But remember the new perspective writers are still Protestant. Yeah. So I, I, that's why I, I want to say the, yeah. the traditional Protestant. Yeah. Uh, the reformed yeah. understanding. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's fine. Yeah. So one of the things to add to this then would be the fact that Western enlightenment thinking is very individualistic yep. and so we add to that of the fact that okay this is about me and my salvation yes yeah and the romans road for all have sin for the ways of sin is death mm -hmm. and you know uh, if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord so we've learned to read romans as in light of that and it makes yes. good sense in light of that also so let me step back for a second also and, and note this that one of the things that happens historically when you look at philosophy and history and how they work together um whether, or it could be science, it could be any, any fields of study. Somebody comes along and says, hey guys, you know, we've got, uh, I'll use science for example, we, we've got all these anomalies, these things that don't make sense in light of the cur current theory and nobody can explain them. Mm -hmm. Well, I got a new idea. If we look at it this way, then it makes sense of all of our anomalies mm -hmm. and it explains all this other stuff also. So somebody like Copernicus and Galileo come along and mm -hmm. do something. Hey guys, maybe the earth's not the center. And the sun is death right, well, you. <laughs> yeah, right? It doesn't. It doesn't play really well for the traditional crowd. That's the that problem, point. right? Yeah. So it, it explains. So why does like Mercury appear in the western sky there, and then it just like goes back down, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it's like over in the eastern sky, and it comes, and then it goes back down. 
Why isn't it going around us? You know, so that these are anomalies that can't be explained by the current theory. All of a sudden, you're like, well, if the Earth's not the center, and if Mars or if uh, Mercury's closer to the sun than we are, then it's going to go up and down and then up. Oh, it makes all the sense in the world. The problem becomes that that hypothesis then has to get tested and get examined by other scholars and they refine it and they go back and forth, go back and forth. And maybe they go, no, it's just wrong. It's not the right one. This is the right one. Or maybe they go, actually, it is correct. But you have this era where people that are like, I don't like the change, especially with the Christians, saying that the, that the earth is the center is actually the way you read Genesis. And then mm -hmm. you're like, it never says that in Genesis. Oh, mm -hmm. of course it does. You get this resistance to change. But then it becomes established fact in science. Like this is this actually is the way it is. The sun is the center and the earth is not. And all of a sudden, the Bible people have to go, oh, I guess Genesis didn't necessarily say that. You know, we find a way to make it work too, and then mm -hmm. we adopt it. So you have that era, though, where these traditionalists are just like not going to listen to anybody. And we mm -hmm. do this in all fields of science and history and everything else that we might go. Uh, but eventually, it gets all kind of worked out. Well, we're in the middle of that kind of bubble there. Yeah. So you get, you know, E.P. Sanders kind of coalesced the work of several of the scholars in 1976. And he comes out with this. And now what you have to do is you have to have the scholarly world go, okay, let's attack mm -hmm. what E.P. Sanders did and see if it really works. And so somebody else will go, well, he's right, but he missed this point. And someone else will go, no, he's wrong because he missed this point. And so you have to let all that play out. So James, James Dunn comes mm -hmm. along or Jimmy Dunn comes along. Says, I think we'd find it this way. No, no, you're wrong. And N.C. Wright comes along. So I think we'd find it this way. Michael Bird comes along. So I think we would find mm -hmm. it this way. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to, we're in the middle of that. Yeah. And so what we have to do as Christians is stop and let's say, you know, in the congregation and go, well, all right, let's go, okay. You know, instead of like digging our heels in and going, this is the only way to do it. It's like, you know what? We might be the fools that kill Galileo later mm -hmm. on and go, yeah, mm -hmm. well, guess we shouldn't have done that. Let's kind of let it play out. And mm -hmm. now again, one of the things that happens with this is like, okay, well, the implications, well, the reformers were wrong. That's, that's one implication. Well, all of a sudden now, so I went, you know, Westminster Seminary, where my PhD is from. It's a confessional school, mm -hmm. and it's a lot. You of don't get you don't get more reformed. No, you don't. <laughs> than than Westminster. Westminster Seminary. Yeah, yeah, the Westminster Confession, all that good stuff there. Well, you can, I guess, oh, yeah. you can get more reformed than it in, in a few ways, but nonetheless. So, the professors at that school, and there are denominations that are like this as well, where you have to say, "I affirm the Westminster Confession." All of a sudden, now they're like, okay, well, how do I reconcile if the reformers were wrong and yet affirm the, the confessions? I can't do that. So immediately your response is to say, okay, this new perspective on Paul, it's wrong. So that, that's part of the reason why you get this, this pushback is because people have things on, at, on the line, namely their jobs. And if you know a little bit about the story, of course, this became a very big issue at Westminster when I was there in the early 2000s with the biblical studies department going, hey, guys, this is what's going on. And the theology department going, no, 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 right? And then you have the board coming in going, yes, right? And it caused some serious problems and people even lost their jobs uh, as a result of it. That's one option. Now, another option was, okay, no, the reformers weren't, weren't necessarily wrong. Paul was wrong. The reformers were reading Paul correctly. Mm -hmm. Paul was talking about legalistic Judaism. But we now know Judaism wasn't legalistic. So Paul was wrong. Well, the reality, that theory didn't last too long because the answer is like, okay, who knows better about first century Judaism than Paul? Mm -hmm. I mean, to say Paul Jew. was wrong is about as <laughs> yeah. arrogant as a 21st century or 20th century scholar can ever be because Paul is the epitome of it. I mean, we only get second century writings about the first century 
Jews. Well, Paul's a first century Jew writing mm -hmm. about first century Judaism. Mm -hmm. He knows better than anybody else. So that option kind of didn't work. But the reality then is we, we adopt these things, these beliefs and these theologies, and then we make them work and people are kind of not willing to let, to let go of that. So we need to be willing to say, okay, let's, you know, let's figure out what this means. Let's wrestle with it a little bit and let's not be so dogmatic or so, and maybe not even dogmatic, not the problem. Maybe it's just the narrow mindedness or the unwillingness to dialogue. Mm -hmm. I think that can be problematic. And again, I understand why, again, I, I grew up very fundamentalist. So I, I understand exactly why people become so conservative and say, I'm not willing to negotiate this because they think that everything that they believe is at stake here and they're not willing to give on it. But you know, the reality is this is going to flush out in maybe the next 20 to 25 years, mm -hmm. if not you know, 50 at the most, we'll have a pretty good consensus of, okay, this is probably where we're at. If, if there's any more archaeological discoveries, it's going to help me even more. Uh, I don't think we need any more. We've got pretty plenty of literature out there now. Let's figure out where we're at. And then let's figure out how this, how this works. The irony in a lot of this as well as amongst the uh, reform reform tradition, which I like, I, I totally consider myself a part sure. of, I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm part of a, you know, a reform Baptist church and whatnot. Uh, there's this idea that, um, and I, I think it was Carl Bart who like attributed this to St. Augustine saying uh, like yes. the church must always be reforming. Like that's, that's the part of the reformation is yeah. it's always reforming. Yeah. Semper uh, reform, it, reformanda or whatever. Yes. Is Latin, yeah, yeah. Always reforming always reforming. Yeah. And, and that, that always cracks me up as someone who is in the reform tradition. And I read a lot of, you know, reformed history as well as modern reformation theologies. And it's like, why, if, if this is the idea <laughs> of the reformation, why aren't we uh, always willing to do that? How come at times we've become our enemies and I, I'm using the caricature within the reform tradition here. I'm, so I'll poke my foot at myself. Uh, you know, the Catholics are often our, our enemies of the, in the reform tradition. And we, we knock them because tradition is one of the things that they stand on. And it's like, well, we do the same thing as well, guys. We, you know, how often do we uh, appeal to uh, some of these traditions as being, you know, just ex cathedra ourselves. Oh. And so, so are we okay with it? So I, I'm saying like, I'm taking that shot at my own tradition as someone who is part yeah. of that, yeah. uh, which is like, Hey, we need to look at these sorts of things. So, yeah. so it, before we start Romans, then we gave a little a primer, you know, we talked about that for 30 minutes, uh, you know, new perspectives. So at the end of the day, then how, how are you convinced from a presuppositional standpoint, bringing in some of the background, how would you say, this is the way I approach reading Romans. Uh, and then I can give my perspective on saying, okay, well, yeah. this is what I bring to the table uh, with my own perspective. Uh, yeah. Paul is arguing. I've been very heavily influenced by uh, N.T. Wright's mm -hmm. thinking, and I think he has a very good handle on it. Though, again, I would uh, iterate the fact that, or reiterate the fact that you can't boil all of Judaism down to one simple thing. There's got to, there's diversity within It's very that. diverse, yeah. So if you say that Judaism was not legalistic, I think that's fairly correct. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that other, that some weren't. Mm -hmm. We can't eliminate the idea of legalism, but the issue of Romans was not salvation by works or salvation by faith. Now, kind of let me step ahead for a second if I can, because I know you kind of asked one question, but I want to step ahead on another one. So my, my heart, I think you kind of know where I'm at, Vinny, when it comes to theological conversations. Yeah, yeah. And that is, I hate having them because, A, I've seen too many bad experiences of people arguing in, you know, in a, in a non-Christian way, you know, just hating people and mm -hmm. yelling at people and fighting and churches dividing. It's like, what are you doing? 
Um, and at the end of the day, my answer is, okay, is this going to make any difference on the way I live as, yeah. as a follower of Christ on how I love my neighbor or my wife or my family or, or image Christ? Okay. Well, no. Okay. Then why am I having this debate? Mm -hmm. For me, it always boils down to what is the impact this has on the way I read scriptures and the way I apply, or we read scriptures and apply mm -hmm. this to our Christian walk and things of that nature. And that is, if you take this theology that says Paul and the gospel or in the New Testament is discussing, it's either salvation by works or salvation by faith, mm -hmm. then you do a serious harm to our reading of the scriptures because the Bible does not make that distinction mm -hmm. because what you end up doing is going, it's only by faith and works aren't necessary. They're just kind of, or they're a good thing to do. Yeah. And I know that not everybody even holds like that radical of a view, but that ultimately becomes the way it gets communicated so mm -hmm. often. If, if a pastor goes up, you got to start doing this. Oh, you're just being legalistic. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, you guys stop cheating on your wife. There's nothing legalistic about this. That's just wrong. I look at it and go as a, from a pastoral perspective. Another way I look at this from a pastoral perspective is, and again, just so everyone understands, I'm ordained Presbyterian. So mm -hmm. uh, take that for whatever you think. They might remove my ordination at the time after they listen to this um, <laughs> uh, podcast. But nonetheless, I, I look at this and go, okay, in one sense, I believe in eternal security. I don't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. I believe that God has chose us and those whom he called, he predestined us. He, he, Romans 8, 28. We'll, we'll get there in Romans 8, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's mm -hmm. clear. Okay, but if you preach that the wrong way or mm -hmm. without clarity, yep. it goes, okay, I'm cool. I accepted Jesus when I was at youth camp. I accepted Jesus last week, whatever it might be. Uh, I can go sin all I want. Just make sure I repent when I'm done. I'm good to go. And I find that a problem because my expertise is the book of Revelation mm -hmm. and the whole emphasis in the book of Revelation is the one who overcomes. Overcoming, yeah. Yeah, and, and Jesus said that. The one who, one who overcomes to the end will be saved, mm -hmm. Matthew 24, verse 13. And so how do I, as a pastor, get up and preach that we, by necessity, need to imitate, model, and grow in the image and likeness of Christ if I stress the previous week that your salvation is totally secure and you can't do anything about it? So somewhere there's a tension, and I'm okay with attention, and I understand that our, theolog our theologians aren't okay with attention sometimes. They want to eliminate it. They want to have a nice category of, oh, here's how I reconcile that tension. And my answer is, don't reconcile the tension. Live with them both. Even if they, so I'm going to say it in a way that just sounds contradictory. I know it's not in my own heart, but you're going to think it is. And that is, your salvation is secure in Christ, and you must overcome mm -hmm. to be saved. Mm -hmm. Okay? And live in that tension. And what that means then is, my overcoming is not to earn the righteousness or the merit of God. I'm not over, because again, that's self-centered. Yeah. I'm not overcoming to get myself saved. I'm overcoming because this is what a saved person does. I'm overcoming because Christ overcame for me. And now I'm going to overcome for my neighbor and for those around me. So I do that because I know my salvation is secure, but I also do that because that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I must by necessity do that. Mm -hmm. And again, that word necessity, what people, they're going to go, okay, Rob, you, you just lost your ordination because, you know, it's just, and, and it's just, no, let's live in that tension. So I don't know what your thoughts on that are. 
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. No, I, and you know, to start bridging this, you know, as someone who works in a in a local congregation yeah, right. who, who is reformed, and uh, you know, like I personally would have no problem teaching a, something like a, a tulip, uh, the theological concept of, right. of of a tulip, and and with that, go ahead and explain is, what that is. It's, it's 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 an acronym that was developed. Uh, people like Calvin created it, but he didn't. Uh, it was it, it, there's a whole thing there, but it, it's Calvin did everything that he did. Calvin did everything because he's yeah super super Calvin, but. Uh, it, it's it's an acronym that stands for uh, theological Five conclusions. Things, yeah. yeah, so th- th- there's a total depravity of the human being. That's meaning the T. The T that that in in oneself you're not you're born in original sin, not having a desire to please God. It uh, doesn't mean you can't do good things. We all have, you know. Calvin would even say, "Well, I'll peel it to Calvin." You could have, uh, you know, a neighbor who is a non-Christian who might do good things. It's just what is the motive for them wanting to do those things? Right. So the you would be unconditional election that it's God who elects uh, his people. You you appeal to Romans eight. So that would be one of the places. Unconditionally the, meaning not because of your good looks, anything or you your did, nationality or gender, your race or anything else, or because of the good works you do. It's, it's yeah, nothing. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The L would be limited atonement. Well, if this is the case, then the atonement. What Jesus died for uh, the election those who which those whom uh god elected yeah and let me come on that many people who believe in reformed theology have mm-hmm. a problem with that l yes so and so the there, there are people lip and the l of limited atonement is some will say well jesus can't do anything as a waste his blood is precious and redemptive so yes. if he died yeah. for you it must work yes so if he died for you and yet you don't have faith then his blood was died in vain or his blood was spilt in vain that doesn't make any sense so he only died for the elect. It's yes. a limited atonement. Many people, myself included, mm-hmm. who are reformed say, I can't go for the L part. Yeah. And, and there's many people who would refer to themselves as like a four-point Calvinist. Yeah, four point, yeah. And that's usually the, the, the point. Yeah. And five-point Calvinists say, there's no such thing. You're the five-pointer. Exactly. You're yeah. just like, okay. So, yeah. Oh, it's, uh, the, are the we done absolutism. Yet? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, are we done? And this is like, and this is where people- that's when I go t- off to the bathroom, get a cup of coffee and get a drink of water. And, well, I was yeah. going to say, to your point, this is when people start getting the arguments and then they start deciding who's in and who's out yeah, because exactly, of, right. you can't agree a, a I can't theological be five points. Point. I, I can't be four points. Yeah. It's like, who made that rule? Yes, exactly. That's not solo scriptura. Is it then the eye would be irresistible grace that those who God calls are are going to have a positive response to the ones the, he died for, the yes. atoned for. Yes. Then get grace, and that grace can't be resisted. Yes. And therefore, yeah. they they by definition are the ones who are saved. Yes. And then the Which P would be that you're going the, to hell because you didn't get grace. And yes. Like, and, and then the P is the perseverance of the grace that those who have experienced this will persevere to the end. Yeah. Uh, so which it, is not the way. By the that's not the way all perseverance of the faith is actually defined though. So, mm. so perseverance of the faith is, uh, that's why, I'm, that's why I go, Hey, you, you guys are missing Calvin a little bit here. Mm-hmm. The ones who are predestined, chosen elect, uh, mm-hmm. who, for whom Christ died as atonement was for you. And for whom he gave you irresistible grace, you persevere because you, by definition, are ones who persevere. Perseverance of the faith has been, no, you must persevere. The faith. And that's what I'm saying. You must persevere. So some mm-hmm. who hold the perseverance of the faith would say, no, it's not a, a necessarily given it's attention saying, no, you must persevere. And that's kind of why I jump and say, okay. yeah, we yeah. must persevere. 
Yeah. And this is where like doing and in, going into the next thing I was going to say is, uh, you know, like we're, we're getting ready to launch a series in the fall in a few weeks now at our church through the book of James. And so even in yeah. talking there, which is, this is a, a book where if you talk about Luther in his first yeah. edition to the new Testament, he describes the book of James as an epistle of straw. Like he did not know what to do with it. He because, thought James was not inspired. Yes. Because he had this, this view of books like Galatians and Romans, which completely rocked him. Those are the two of the books that he wrote commentaries on. And so he didn't know what to do with something right. like James. And so this is where it's beautiful because when you read someone like a Calvin, it, it's funny because we have we do have a stunt, and I don't want to make this a I'm not an apologist for Calvin at all. I'm no, not yeah, even Presbyterian. Yeah. Calvin had, a, I think, a number of problems. Absolutely, but, yeah. but there's there's great things that he he did have yeah. in this the, this topic of uh, something like what do works look like? What are the roles mm-hmm. of works? And and he uses this this brilliant illustration of saying like. Hey, the, the idea of faith and works, it is like the sun and the sun rays that reach the earth, where it's like the, the rays of sun, the heat that we feel, that's not the sun itself, but it exists because of the sun and you can't have one without the other. Yeah. And so like why we, why we often do have a caricature, and this is why I will support of many within the reformed tradition, while we do have this caricature of something like faith alone. And that means you just don't have to do anything. And oh, I'm predestined. So that means I could live however I want. When you read a lot of the reformers, that's not the view they have, because there is this view that says ethics matter, the way you live matters. And the regenerated heart will produce this kind of life that either will persevere to the end, or you must, you know, whatever you want to call it, like that's the result of what's going to happen. That's the fruit, if you you want to call it that. Right. Right. And let me know now, by the way, one of the more famous verses in this discussion often is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Yes, absolutely. Which many of you might know for by Mm -hmm. grace, you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. And then we stop. Exactly. (laughs) Because then verse 10 says, but we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Yes. Which God prepared beforehand so that we Mm -hmm. would walk in them. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, you can't just. and, And that's my biggest issue in this as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a teacher is to say, yeah, if you take election predestination so far, then you eliminate the sermon Yes. because what am I exhorting you to do? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I may have said this before, but when I was preaching in, you know, in our congregation, when we, we'd finish the sermon and then we'd have a, a song at the end of it. And then, you know, we do three stands. I don't know what they're called. You know what the music stuff mm-hmm. is, three stands or whatever the sure. song. And then we stop and pause and I would give like a a benediction, you Mm -hmm. know, I'd read a verse or whatever it might be a a word of blessing. And then I would walk out through the center aisle, just a formal procession type of thing. And I'd go to the door and then they'd sing the last stanza, chorus, whatever it might be. And then everyone walks out and the pastor's already there to shake your hand. Right. And everyone says the good sermon Yep, yep. and some stick 50 bucks in my pocket. Okay. I wish that would happen. I, you know, I, I preached at that church like three times and I never had $50 stuck. Yeah. Okay. uh, So what the the heck? That that didn't happen. Okay. (laughs) It wasn't even five bucks. Um, Sometimes they took 50 bucks out of my pocket. Yeah. There you go. There you (laughs) go. No, I never had 50 bucks for them to have. (laughs) That that can't be true either. Anyways, but I would tell them, I said, listen, if at the end of my sermon, if you heard me say, try harder, Mm -hmm. if that's what I meant, if that's Mm -hmm. what you think I meant, when I get to the door, don't don't shake my hand, slap me in the face. Yes, very good. Because the point of that is, is that when we say you have to overcome, it's not like try harder because the message is the spirit of God is what empowers yes. us. Amen. So mm-hmm. it's rely harder. And so the whole idea of this is we need to surrender more mm-hmm. so that I can't, I know I'm not going to, let's figure this out. We're not going to overcome by our own strength and power. Mm-hmm. I've been trying it for like 56 years and it hasn't worked yet. 
So the reality is it only works when we surrender. And so, yeah, you're called to imitate, imitate Christ. Yeah, you're created uh, to be God's workmanship so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. But you can't do that by yourself because the flesh is what the flesh is. We, so we must rely upon the spirit. And I think that's just, I think that's central to the gospel message. Well, and, and that's the way we define it in my congregation where we use terms like, are, are you living a gospel driven life in that way where your life actually depends on the gospel? Are, are you living in a way that is depending on a spirit empowerment to do these sorts of things? Um, or are you doing it in yourself? So e even there, like the, the concept of try harder, it's like you're missing the point and not because of it's a legalism thing at that point. It's just, that's not depending on the spirit of God. Right. So therefore that's not a Christian ethic. All right. So let's bring this back to Paul. Let me quote one of the scholars in this conversation, Michael Bird, who's kind of got a nuanced view of it, but I'm not going to show you the nuanced view in this particular part now. Let, let me actually say this before you quote, quote yeah. Bird, because you had mentioned how like someone like an N.T. Wright was very influential for you. Yeah. And that's where oh, yeah, even yeah. you and I, we're having a lot of points of contact when it comes to the application here, but we have disagreements in terms of how we read. So for you, yeah. you're okay saying, you know, just identifying on the new perspective side of the equation, N.T. Wright, yes. And that for me, I'm saying, I'm okay identifying with a lot of traditional Reformation theology. Yeah. However, I also recognize people like a Michael Bird who he does have, uh, he calls himself a progressive uh, reformed position on something like this, where he still identifies in that camp, yet he has adopted a lot of the new perspectives. Someone like that is where I say, yeah, I think this gets right because it's not choosing a binary. It's one or the other. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot that could be adopted there. And at the end of the day, it's the ethic is the thing that like yes. we want to get the exegesis, the interpretation correct, but what does this drive us to do? That's right. All right. And that's but what we're going still at. still a big question. So all right, there's still mm -hmm. a big question. I think we're going to agree on this. A big question of, okay, so, but what was Paul arguing? Yes, absolutely. And I think what Paul was arguing is kind of summarized really well here in this Michael Bird quote. And he says mm -hmm. this, the new perspective, or, you know, what was Paul arguing? Argue that Judaism was not legalistic. And therefore Paul's problem with Judaism was not over salvation by works, but rather that Judaism was ethnocentric. Mm-hmm meaning that Jews believe that salvation was limited to the Jews. Paul goes around to argue that God through Jesus accepts Gentiles as Gentiles without having to convert to Judaism as a proselyte. Gentiles are saved by faith, not by doing works of the law, which are the boundary markers, as we mentioned, circumcision, mm -hmm. Sabbath keeping and food laws. Now, Michael Bird adds that and says, okay, but if we were to say that Jews were, that Judaism was not legalistic, he'd say, well, that's more complex because mm -hmm. some of them were at least yes. in some tangents. I hope that summary of what, what I just read was Paul's concern was mm -hmm. you've made this ethnic, you've made one superior to the other, mm -hmm. and you've made our, our brothers and sisters in Christ second-class citizens in mm -hmm. the kingdom of God. And so you're going to see this, especially in like in the book of Ephesians, the barrier, the boundary wall that divided Jews and Gentiles, God, Jesus Christ broke it down. And we're not out. We are now one in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, first Corinthians opens up with, I exhort you brothers to be one. Mm -hmm. So this unity, because remember, again, unity reflects the Trinity. Mm -hmm. God is one. Mm -hmm. And remember, if you go back to the garden, Adam and Eve were one. In fact, before they sinned, they were naked and didn't mm -hmm. even know it because they were one. Once they sinned, they're like, hey, we're not the same. You know, what are we doing here? Hey, you got no clothes on. Put some. You know. And all of a sudden they realized the disunity. So the unity of the church, the unity of God's people reflects the nature of God and his intention is our image bearers. And so Paul's like, this is critical. But again, Paul was not arguing explicitly, at least, this is the process about how an individual person gets saved. That's modern Westernism. And Paul was, and Judaism was complex. 
and probably did not reflect the Roman Catholic Church at the time of Martin mm-hmm. Luther, but was more nuanced and had at least some sense in which ethnicity was the barrier. Would you agree with that? Ethnicity was the boundary marker that they were making distinctions of. So would, I, would you have affirmed that much of a distinction that I made or, or do we differ? A little no, more? no, no. And, and even when I go, like I'm going to teach through the book of Romans coincidentally in the fall in my Sunday school class. Okay. And that's what we'll talk about in week one. You have, it's not just one Roman church. You probably have between four and eight congregations in Rome, Christian congregations. people, yeah. Yeah, they're small congregations. And what you probably have is a predominant Gentile congregation with some Jews in there. And the Gentiles are, this is at least a, a largely, a, I've pulled from Doug Moo on this. So this is a lot of his perspective. So I, I'd love to hear your uh, perspective. But it's, you, know, you have this largely Gentile congregation within a following the Jewish Messiah. And so now you have these issues between Jew and Gentile saying, you know, like, okay, well, who, who has claim here? What's happening with these ethnic issues that are happening? And so that's a lot of what is happening. This is what you see it between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two with some of the issues that are being addressed, which I'm sure we'll get into what we get in the text. And so I actually appeal to a, a quote that Mike Bird uses a lot when it comes to this topic and in Galatians, which is the point of the gospel is you're in by grace, not by race. Mm. Uh, and, and that's a way Which he's is anachronistic it. if you apply that to the first century, but we get it. it yeah, sense. yeah, yeah. And that's just the way he's, he's trying to frame the, the conversation in terms of this is a very real issue that's happening. It, it's how Jewish does a Gentile need to become to follow the Jewish Messiah. And so this is a lot of the issue that's being uh, uh, being dealt with in both a book like Romans or Galatians. And so I would absolutely affirm that those things are happening. I would just say, I think that there's also individual stuff happening. Like how do how does one get right with God? I I don't think it's at, at the expense of that. I think no. that that's. I think this is probably the front door issue, and then it's addressing these things, those other things as well from our yeah. other traditional Reformation reading. All right, so we don't have this in our notes that we weren't mm-hmm. gonna. I was gonna kind of skip over the introduction to Romans, but I think you brought up a good point, and it's probably pertinent to mention mm-hmm. that it's very likely. Now remember, when you get to the Book of Romans, Paul has never been to Rome. Mm-hmm. So he's writing to a church that he's never been to. We have to somewhat speculate a little bit here, but in the late 1940s, the emperor Claudius, and he reigned from 41 to 54. Um, he, Not 1940s. And four, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? There was another emperor in yeah, the 1940s. Like there's no 141 or, or 300 <laughs> yeah. or 1900. There's, it's just the year 41 to 54. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't abbreviating. He ruled from 41 to 54. And he, in the middle of his reign, made an edict that expelled all the Jews from Rome. Mm-hmm. Now we're told by a Roman historian that the argument was actually over a man named Crestus, mm-hmm. which many scholars believe was a misspelling of Christ, Christus. And so the, the thought is that Christianity had made it to Rome, which we know it had most likely made it to Rome before then, by the late forties. Christianity makes it to Rome. The Jewish community was hearing about this Jesus thing and some were accepting it and some were not accepting it. And some of the Gentiles were coming in. And remember, there were were Gentiles who attended the Jewish synagogues, and they were known as God-fearers, and they just didn't get circumcised and do some of those things. But otherwise, they feared the Jewish God and practiced the Jewish religion. When they hear about this Jesus thing, we mentioned this in our study of Acts, when they hear about the Jesus thing, they readily accept it, or more readily accept it. And so now you have this debate amongst the Jews and some of the Gentiles in in the Roman churches. And again, there might have been 100 people or 50 people in these churches now, Mm -hmm. total. And this debate arises and the Jews, whether they're the Jewish Christians or the Jews outside, the members of the synagogue, over this Crestus thing, they, there's such a conflict 
that uh, Claudius says, you know what, all Jews get out of here. And again, the Jews were not well respected back at that time. Mm-hmm. Anti-Semitism was a real thing throughout much of history, etc. So the Jews were expelled. And if you're reading the biblical story, uh, Aquila and Priscilla are mm-hmm. two of the Jewish Christians who were expelled from Rome at that time. They go to Corinth. So when Paul goes to Corinth, as we study in the book of Acts, he stays with Aquila and Priscilla. That's what they were doing in Corinth. They were from Rome, but they got expelled. Well, when Nero comes into power in 54 AD, Nero rescinds that edict. Mm-hmm. So now the Jews can return home. So some of the Jews had settled in some other places. Aquila and Priscilla had kind of followed Paul around a little bit. And so like, hey, they can go back if they want. So some of the Jews come back. Well, now what you have then is in Christianity, you have a solely Gentile church for X number of years. And some of the Jews are coming back. And some of them like Aquila and Priscilla, they're like, hey, well, let's come back in the church now. And now you have this conflict. And, and that might be the context. And so uh, what Scott McKnight's going to say, for example, is when he talks about the strong and the weak, he says the strong are the Gentile followers of Jesus who believe that you don't have to get circumcised to be saved. Mm-hmm. They, they were strong. The weak are the Jews who are just not certain about this and no, you got to get circumcised. And so this is the tension. And this tension revolves around the entirety of, the, of Rome, of Paul's reign in the Rome. It's like, okay, I'm writing to you Gentiles to say, you know, hey, hang on there. We owe our faith to the Jews. And uh, the Gentiles might be going, hey, you Jews deserve to be expelled because you rejected Jesus or whatever they might have been saying. And Paul's writing to encourage them, but to quiet them a little bit, Mm -hmm. put them in their place. And then he's writing to the Jews who say, you know, yeah, God didn't forget his covenant with Israel because it looks like God did because a there are the the Gentiles are in the faith, but the Jews aren't. And Paul's like, "Uh, I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. So not all Jews have abandoned them. And yeah, many Jews have. And so here's what, here's what God's going to do about that. He's going to bring these Jews back in and here's how he's going to do it. So this is that context. I think that's kind of important to set the stage a little bit for. Now, let me also mention this. So yeah, we're going to have some really deep theology as we go through Romans, but the beauty of Romans is Romans 12 through 15. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so we want to kind of get to Romans 12 through 15. So Vinny and I have kind of been a little bit deep talking about the theology tonight, why it matters, hopefully giving you a little bit of a framework. Um, you might need to listen to this podcast a couple of times and kind of maybe take some notes here a little bit and, and kind of go forward. And then as we discuss kind of the early chapters of Romans, we'll put it in context. Maybe it'll make a little bit more sense. Galatians might make more sense now. Mm-hmm. But really the thing is that we want to get to Romans 12 through 15. Now, the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to try to have several scholars in to discuss. So normally we bring in one biblical scholar to talk about their view of the gospel of John, Mary Ann May Thompson, my, my Thompson, for example, or whatever it might be. But we're going to try to bring in several of these voices. I don't think we're going to get N.T. right, but that's okay. <laughs> but uh, Scott McKnight's going to come on, but he might not come on until September. So we might be into our First Corinthians podcast by then, but we'll get him on. Uh, we're going to hopefully maybe get Michael Byrd on. Michael Gorman has written a, a brand new commentary and done tremendous work, and he's been on our podcast before. We're going to get him on here in a few weeks. So we're going to be able to ask these questions of them and see where they're at and have them explain why this is important as well as, okay, what does this have to do with Romans 12 through 15? Mm-hmm. Because that really is the crux. And I think Vinny stated it earlier here to kind of reiterate, and that is, this is the pinnacle of Paul's theology. It really is. I mean, mm-hmm. Ephesians is pretty good as well. It's kind of the mm-hmm. classic, but this is in a nutshell, Paul's theology, but remember it wasn't written in a vacuum. So mm-hmm. we're not discussing letters just yet per se, but the nature of letters is they were written we call them occasional documents. They, they were written because an occasion arose that, that necessitated the writing. They weren't just like, you know what? I want to write a book on the end times or, the, or whatever it might be. It's like, I want to write a letter to the church in Rome because they need, they need my words. 
Um, so Paul's addressing a certain a certain issue there, and I think that puts it a little bit in the context there. So well, and just to look at a couple of the points you made. While Romans is a letter and you do look at the situation, what's happening, it, it, this is one of the, the the later things that Paul does, right? So he has a whole career to expound on this thing. He, he's been thinking about this. This is yeah. this is not something that he's just, you know, jotting down and sending off. So there, there is a lot there where you could say oh, there's almost a culmination of his uh, theology and those sorts of things. And, and that's why oftentimes people look at Romans like it is almost like a systematic theology, even though that's, that's the wrong, we're just asking the wrong questions if we do that, because there's a lot that Paul doesn't address in, in his letter here. Yeah, it, again, he a systematic places. theology, if you're listening, is a theology that says, what is the totality of the biblical yes. teaching on God, or the totality of the biblical teaching on mm-hmm. justification, or the totality of the biblical teaching on baptism. And you, you don't get the totality from any one book of, of the Bible right um but and, and then systematic theology says well the totality of the biblical story on on the nature of god is this yeah and a biblical scholar might come along and say yeah well that doesn't quite make sense of what paul says in thessalonians mm-hmm. well of course mm-hmm. it does because it's the totality of the biblical story on god and that's where you kind of get the conflict between a biblical scholar and a, and a theologian there yeah because you guys are just doing different things yeah uh, you have different job descriptions yeah uh, and wh- sometimes well bruce fisk whom we had mm-hmm. on i think mm-hmm. for luke right He's going to say, well, I don't think the authors always agree with each other. Yeah. So that means theology is impossible. I I don't think I agree with with Bruce on that. I think they just have different perspectives. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard sometimes to fit those different perspectives into a theological bubble or basket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what I said earlier was, I think sometimes there's tension. And I think that tension is good and necessary. And we need to be content with that tension of saying, yeah, I'm elect, but I'm also need to overcome and need mm-hmm. to persevere. Mm-hmm. And I do both by the grace of God and by the spirit of God. So I think we live kind of in the both there. As we wrap up uh, Romans 12, we want to get 12 to 15. Yeah. And for folks who might not be familiar with the, the way Romans is laid out is you traditionally have this thought where chapters one through 11 are deeply theological and they are, I mean, they deal with a lot with theology. I, see, I draw the line at one through eight. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. One through eight are deeply theological. Okay. Okay. I can see that because nine through 11, you're, it's, it's a you're lot of Israel the, questions. Which the question I, of the Jews. Yeah. I, I would still argue that there's a, a theology in there, but yeah, of I course. Can, yeah. Yeah. And then 12 through 15 or 12 through six, I mean, 16 is the, is the closing, but yeah, it's, the, it's the ending, you, you have uh, this deeply ethical thing. This is, you know, like, especially Romans 12, is there a better chapter in the Bible? <laughs> they have these deep ethics about how to live these commands, these imperatives. And, um, N.T. Wright makes a great comment in his commentary on Romans in chapter 12, because he'll talk about how we often, you know, he makes this point. We oftentimes think that uh, one through 11 is theology and 12 through 16 is ethics. But we need to remember that all of Paul's, I'm trying to quote him correctly, Mm -hmm. all of Paul's theology is ethical and all his ethics are theological. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't divide them. You can't. And we need to see the beauty of that. You can't just pick up in chapter 12. You can't just drop into these things. He's making a point. It it would be no different than how you would read Ephesians where the first three chapters are written in in such a way. And then chapters four through six shift. And it's like all these things need to be written together uh, and and read together. Yeah. And keep it simple. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. Why? That's your ethic. Why? Because God is love. There's your theology. Exactly. And the theology, the ethics flow from the theology. You just can't separate these two. Yeah. And when you do ch- separate them, that's when you get the issue that you're talking about as a pastor of it becomes try harder when it's just yeah. the ethic. Because yeah. yeah. now you're trying to do something that does not depend on a gospel driven uh, way of living, that you're depending on the, the, the empowering spirit of God. Yeah. Let me also mention this. And that is, 
we can take a little bit of measure of consolation from this, uh, from the context of, of Romans. That is, there's a dispute between Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. It's ethnic and go, all right, maybe my church ain't always that bad. Mm-hmm. Right. And by the way, it's going to get way worse mm-hmm. when you get to Corinth and go, yeah. oh my goodness, what? <laughs> they had some issues. <laughs> These people are actually Christians. I'm mm-hmm. not sure about this. Right. A man has his father's, father's wife and you are proud. Yeah. I'm not sure in my church that he'd be able to take communion. Right. Yeah. Yes. So the reality is, yeah, the church really is messed up and has always been messed up. And I think that speaks in a lot of different ways. We'll probably be covering this as we go through all, all the letters there. But that means that this greater imperative for humility, this greater imperative for love and for forgiveness and for mercy and things of that nature, and for coming along, you know, First Corinthians is like, I exhort you, brothers, that you walk in unity. I mean, period, that there be no divisions among you. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, well, I don't know of a church today that that's true of mm-hmm. unless it's like a house church that just got planted and the only people in the church are like the husband and wife that are planting it okay mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. they haven't invited anybody else in yet and i'm still not sure that they're one they're even unified because the husband and wife aren't gonna be i, I was gonna say because yeah. husbands and wives never have issues <laughs> yeah but um you know so the reality is let's think about that and process that because i think a lot of people in our congregations and our church, I think a lot of pastors get frustrated when it's not perfect, mm-hmm. because I'm, that means I'm not a good leader, or you're not listening well enough. Or, and I think a lot of people in the congregation get frustrated and take it out on the pastor, because what are you doing? And stop and say, okay, look, we need to have some level of understanding of the fact that we're not going to agree on all these issues, but we're still going to go to church and eat, take communion together. And, and we're, we're good with this. Mm-hmm. And Let's relax a little bit on some of these things. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not saying that they're not important. I'm just saying that we haven't got it all figured out. Um, we don't have Paul here anymore, right? We don't have um, John here anymore, Peter here anymore to go, okay, let me, this is what I meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're going to have conflicts and uh, let's kind of work through them with some grace instead of some uh, stress. Absolutely. And, and to your point, I'm I, in during the summer, I also teach a class on um, political theology, the ethics of it. And what the main point that we go through, there's two main points in the class, but we hammer this every week. Are you willing to share the Lord's supper in your congregation with someone who might vote differently than you? Cause that's yeah. the context there. And, and this is the same kind of question that I think Paul is addressing in a different context. It's, it's the type of thing that he's saying is you need to be okay with this. If you're unified, if you're united by Christ, then those other sorts of things, whether it's ethnic ethnicity, your voter card, all those things, those don't get to define you. And, and you need to be able to share that Lord's Supper with them as well. Yeah, that's right. So I'm chuckling because in my congregation, I had like far right Trumpers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Conservatives and flaming liberals on the other side. And I knew who they were and wow. they had no clue about each other. Interesting. And so they was, oh, of course, uh, you know, I'm not sure I would like well, you do every week. You just don't know that they're in your congregation. But that actually speaks a lot too, because, right? Because a lot of the younger people, they see that. Yeah. And they're yep. leaving our churches because yep. you won't eat communion because I am this or because 100%. I am that. Yep. And you won't let me into your congregation or community by that. I preached at a church a while back. I think you might know this, right? I won't give all the details here. I preached at a church a while back and their bulletin had mm-hmm. prayer requests and praise requests on the back page. And the prayer requests and the praise requests 
were politically motivated to one particular side of the debate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And up on the front, on a guest preacher, up in the front, they have love God, love others, and something else. I don't remember what the third part said, right? And I'm thinking, you don't love others. I don't mm-hmm. know what you're talking about. Because if I'm one of the others on the other side of the political aisle or whatever it might be, you told me in this bulletin, you don't like people like Mm -hmm, me mm -hmm. because your bulletin was praising people and praising things that I actually Mm -hmm. am grieving about right now. And so you might think, oh, all God's people, it's like, no, they don't. And, And people that aren't God's people definitely don't necessarily rejoice for these things, but they're in your church and they want to hear about Jesus. And you just told them you're not welcome here. I'm telling you right now, they very strongly said, you're not welcome here. Yeah. yeah. So. And if you want more on that topic, go back about nine, 10, 11 months and look at our four part series on Christian nationalism. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we'll probably be talking about this more. So yeah. Yes, All right. yeah, Good. yeah. Okay. So we ready to get started now? Yeah. Yeah. That was the intro, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was cool. All right. Okay. I think great conversation. I hope that was edifying for everybody else as well. So yeah. So next week we'll come back and we'll start jumping into the text, right? Yeah. And so we're going to figure out how quickly we can get the chapters nine through 11 and then yeah. 12 through 15 yeah. without, without doing um, an injustice to one, one through eight, but we want to have like several biblical scholars on with Romans also. So yeah. we're gonna have a lot of fun. So read the book yes. um, and read it several times and just kind of let it sit and go, okay, how do we read it? Maybe I'm going to read this from a different perspective and, and, and let it sink in. Perfect. All right, everyone. Hope this was helpful. It's a different kind of podcast, but hopefully it was good. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about this, this study. So we'll see everyone soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.